Afudaï, Bila Bila, Congo, Le Monde Vache Gogita, Associé, Associé, Oh, Fouet Moué, Bilenou, Associé, Ou Débassé Malassé, Ou Douan Vivre, Ou Est Comment Mouré, Maré Les Lois Rassio, Maré Les Lois Mapouyo, Ou Douan Vivre, Nambou de Florida, ça qui va vivre et moi, nous mettons ça et ouvre. En yé, en yé, ou nous avons besoin, moi, Nambou de Florida, ça, ça qui va vivre et moi, y'a voué, non, marché là. Hi, this is Ashley White, and I'm a professor of history at the University of Miami uh, in Florida. My area of specialization is early North American history with a particular interest in the region's ties to the wider Atlantic world, which is what brought me to the history of Haiti and its revolution. The book I'm going to discuss with Patrick today is, is my first book, Encountering Revolution, Haiti, and the Making of the Early U.S. Republic. Back in the 18th century, you wrote that Saint-Domingue and the United States were both at times referred to as, quote, America, American, and Creole. Creoles. Well, what was that all about? How were how the two locations uh, alike? My inspiration for thinking through how both Saint-Domingue and the United States were American places came from a comment by a merchant in New Orleans who wrote to an associate in the East Coast of the U.S. Uh, in 1792, and he said, well, they, like all the merchants, are saying that Philadelphia is, is now the new Cape. And by the new Cape, he meant the new Cap Francais in, in Saint-Domingue. And at first, this struck me as, as odd, but it, it also was a, a challenge to think about how, from the purview of this merchant in New Orleans and, and the others he, he said felt or saw things similarly, how these two places could actually be seen as as alike in some key in some key regards. And the first was that they are both America. In in the 18th century, the the Caribbean, North America, South America could all be referred to as America. The the sort of aggressive appropriation of America with you and, and equating it to the United States is something that happened subsequently. And which some quarters obviously still resist for good reason. But in in the 18th century, both people in, in Saint-Domingue and in the United States could be called Americans. Um, and there were particular associations, at least on the part of European writers, about America and Americans. By Americans, they meant, another term they often used was Creole. By Creole, that meant anyone born in America. So a Creole could be, you could have a, a, sometimes you'll see advertisements for Creole slaves. That means simply an enslaved person born in America. There are white Creoles, right? Both white, Grand Blanc could have been called a Creole as well as oh, white elites in, in the United States. So, and in Europe, following on the heels of the writings of Comte de Buffon, there was this notion that people born in the Americas suffered from a kind of what he called degeneracy, that they weren't as hardy as as Europeans. And, and he sort of purportedly saw this in, in people, but also in animals, in plants. It seemed to be this very, very in different place from, from that of Europe and a place that was seen from the purview of Buffon as a lesser 
right? And the people there as lesser. Thomas Jefferson tries to, to rebut this in his notes on the state of Virginia in 1780 and in, in Mahode de when he's writing in the 1790s about the colony of Saint-Domingue when he produces his three-volume history. He too is pushing back against Buffon. So both elites in the new United States and Saint-Domingue are contesting this vision of Americans, people born uh, in America, Caribbean or the United States, as as different. But, but then I began to consider the ways that, I don't know, from a bird's eye view, but also on the ground, that at least urban areas in the East Coast of the United States and in Saint-Domingue shared a, shared a good deal that would perhaps make it feasible from some points of view that a place like Philadelphia or Charleston could be seen as a new cape with the arrival of all these exiles. So first of all, we know that because of increased trade between Saint-Domingue and the United States, starting with the American Revolution and then persisting to a lesser degree, but nevertheless persisting in the the 1780s, that there was a good deal of connections between U.S. seaports and the principal cities of Saint-Domingue, like Port-au-Prince, Cap-Francais, Le Quai. So there was a kind of knowledge shared, at least among some quarters, merchants to be sure, but also black sailors that plied the seas on these ships between, between these sites. So there was an awareness of the two. Both places, those seaports were central to facilitating trade with one another, but out across the Atlantic. And their cities were similarly sized, right? So Philadelphia in the early 1790s, I don't know, estimates range around the tens of thousands of people, the same for Cap Francais, right? They were compared to, I don't know, some of the larger cities in Spanish South America, they were kind of second tier cities, but but vibrant ones. They were also dependent on the agricultural production of their countrysides, right? So a place like Philadelphia was reliant on the grain trade moving through the colony and being pushed out. A place like Charleston is obviously tied up in, in rice and indigo. And Saint-Domingue, too, is its port cities are reliant, of course, on the on the plantation economies. Even though Saint-Domingue was mm, comparable in terms of its geographic size to to Maryland, its economy was diverse. Its agricultural economy was was diverse. So the Northern Plain, you saw more sugar production. In the South, you saw more coffee production. In the West, it had a more rough and ready quality. But irrigation around Port-au-Prince in the second half of the 18th century, you witnessed more flourishing agriculture thanks to the labor of thousands of enslaved people to create to produce coffee, cotton, indigo. And so it seemed to me that there was a, a kind of sensibility around the economy, around the size of rural urban centers, around the ways that Americans in both of those spikes places were treated vis-a-vis Europeans or understood that that created a kind of a kind of parity as refugees began to arrive in US cities in the 1790s. Afudai! Sendomengan exiles. Why did they choose the US? I said it was a complex picture. Paint that picture for us, please. What were the numbers and living arrangements, how they made money, and the social networks that they create, religion, so on and so forth. Not all exiles from the Haitian Revolution could choose where where they wanted to go. So, for example, 
sometimes the very conditions of flight need to leave extraordinarily quickly to get on any boat taking one off the island, say, after the Battle of the Cap in 1793, meant that, that people were going wherever the boats took them. In the case of enslaved exiles, some of them may have been coerced by um, the people who claimed to own them, right, to, to leave with them off the island. And so their destination wasn't perhaps necessarily of, of choice, but of, of compulsion. But in some of the document trail, we can identify that some exiles from Saint-Domingue chose the United States, saw it as appealing versus other sites. And the reasons for this are several. As the, as the revolution unfolded, and actually as the, the French Revolution unfolded too, and as France declared war on other sites in Europe, well, that meant that the Caribbean erupted as another site of, of in, cross-imperial war, right? As Britain goes to war with France, then that spills out into the Caribbean. As there's contest between France and Spain, Española, right, becomes a, a site of contest. So other sites in the Caribbean, which one might think would be closer and easier and perhaps more akin to Saint-Domingue, those are actually unstable, right? And so exiles looking for maybe a place of greater safety choose the United States, which throughout the 1790s is trying to maintain a position of neutrality in the French Revolutionary Wars. Um, so that in a way seems appealing. Others had connections on the island, as I, as I talked about previous, uh, between the island, excuse me, and the United States. So uh, as I talked about previously, there were merchant ties, family ties between Saint-Domingue and the United States. And so exiles tried to, in the, in the word of uh, Meryl Meadows, tried to engineer their exile to end up somewhere where they might have uh, some inroads to, to making the transition. And third, depending on when they left during the Haitian Revolution, some exiles thought they would just be in the United States briefly, that they would be able to return fairly quickly. That, um, and that, for example, in the early days of the revolution, that the slave rebellion would be quashed, right, and planters could return, or that the British would conquer uh, French revolutionary forces in Saint Domingue, and then white exiles uh, would return. Right? So, there's there's a sense what the United States was a good temporary haven, but whether temporary or more extended. Exiles had to figure out how to make ends meet in the United States. And uh, we see sometimes they strategized for this. Uh, some, for example, in preparation for exile, took things with them that would be economically beneficial. So one of the things, uh, some of the items we see them taking are, are silver, Text and textiles, both of which uh, are portable, clearly, but also have a high resale value on a lively secondhand market. We know that uh, silver and, and textiles held their value. And so if you look at accounts, uh, the trunks of, of some exiles, uh, white exiles mostly, but occasionally uh, we have evidence from uh, free women of African descent. Uh, they're packing as many textiles as they can, in part because they could sell them in order in order to make money and, and finance uh, their stays in, in U.S. cities. White exiles also brought or coerced enslaved people. It's tricky, actually, to figure out the motivation of enslaved people and uh, Jean de Couleur, who showed up in the United States. In that, in the case of Jean de Couleur, one could one could see that while, say, after 1793 and 1794, when uh, the citizenship and freedom of black men was proclaimed in uh, in, in France on the island, and then on Fran and then in France, uh, how they would prefer perhaps to to stay on the island, and yet. 
most of the, the war subsequently, right, whether under the French Republican regime or when it became a war of independence after 1802, was about trying to realize freedom and citizenship on the ground. And perhaps for some Black actors, whether free or in, enslaved, uh, they preferred to wait out the war elsewhere. <laughs> Others, no doubt, were con- coerced by by circumstances, right? And for white exiles who coerced uh, it, Black people to come with them, often we see them bringing enslaved people in order to profit from them, not usually from sale uh, or less so from sale, but more so for renting out their services, uh, essentially uh, reaping benefit from their labor by having them work as stevedores in urban areas or tailors or whatever skill sets or as domestics um, in, in U.S. cities. So there's a way that exiles are are trying in anticipation of flight and during flight to prepare for a kind of economic viability in, in the United States. Their living arrangements in, in U.S. cities were certainly different, perhaps, than what they experienced in in Saint-Domingue. Many of them are living in boarding houses or renting rooms, again, a kind of temporary accommodation that perhaps wasn't like how they lived in Saint-Domingue, but we know would have been familiar Right. Their boarding houses and and, and Cap Francais, this would have been seen as something that was possible in the urban landscape of, of seaport cities. Um, but this also meant for, mm, for migrants who came in groups, say, uh, a white family with enslaved people at, at beholden to that family, they would be living in these in these circumstances, which are are striking, right? If they're renting two rooms in a boarding house and you have uh, six individuals, uh, the families, the white members of the family are are taking over the, the space and enslaved people are... Uh, finding accommodation in attics, in outbuildings, right? They're sort of squeezed into the spatial interstices of of these urban settings, which is something that we know from scholarship about urban slavery in the United States, that enslaved people are living in close proximity to, uh, to the white people who claim ownership over them. We see too that refugees tended to cluster in certain areas of areas of the city. Uh, if you look at city directories, you can find French names um, that are attributed to folks from Saint Domingue along certain streets, like congregating as a as a way to kind of provide themselves uh, support. <laughs> Another side of support would be religious institutions, in that many of the exiles, white and black, practiced Catholicism. Um, and if you look at the registers of Catholic churches in a place, say, like Philadelphia, you'll find uh, baptismal and even in the marriage records, white refugees, you'll find black refugees baptizing, baptizing their children, naming white godparents. Uh, in the marriage registers, you can find black exiles and white exiles not marrying one another, but but getting married. Um, that changes to a certain degree the the demographics of these churches, which uh, their congregations were may, mainly Irish Catholic. But you have this influx of a of a francophone Catholicism, a francophone Caribbean Catholicism. And there's evidence of masses even being performed in French to accommodate these newcomers. Given the prevalence of voodoo on Saint-Domingue, there is, of course, the question of whether Black refugees brought with them this religion to the United States. And, And I was very curious about that 
But given uh, the persecution of voodoo practitioners, uh, both in Saint-Domingue and elsewhere, uh, it was extraordinarily difficult for me to find any kind of evidence. It's not so surprising that Black practitioners of voodoo, if they did come to the United States, would, would try to, to cloak those practices, to keep them out of the purview of white observers who left uh, most records in the archive uh, for us to then investigate to try and locate uh, voodoo. But it's not so, it's not so, such a leap of the imagination to think that it wouldn't be possible, right? That <coughs> given the syncretic nature of, of voodoo, the way that it makes African religious, West African religious traditions and uh, Catholicism, that Black exiles in Catholic churches could have been practicing Catholicism, but also um, been sustained by voodoo religious practices too. So while you have some means of support, whether um, economic uh, with what they brought with them or uh, community building in, in certain streets and through churches, uh, we do see that that sending and refugees are are dealing with the dislocation of of exile, uh, even if they brought property with them that they could sell. That only lasted so long, especially if their exile uh, dragged on longer than anticipated, and so. You can find advertisements for refugees who are looking for work. Right. In some cases, white exiles are advertising the services of enslaved people, uh, domestics, as I suggested earlier, or um, as, uh, as as artisans, as laborers of different sorts. But white refugees uh, tried their hand at, at making a living in urban environments. Uh, they did often anything they could, they would begin these advertisements with mini descriptions describing them as, as sort of noting that they were un unfortunate refugees from the Isle of Saint-Domingue, sort of leaning on uh, their circumstances as a way to hopefully generate sympathy and business from Americans in these, in these cities. Uh, so they would turn up uh, if they were artisans and they bought the tools of their trade, they would try to practice those in uh, U.S. cities. Others tried to use their education to advantage. They offered to give French lessons or fencing lessons or dance lessons or any of the uh, skills of uh, individuals of a certain class. They tried to commodify and and tried to sell them too because because they were French. In some cases though, the the language barrier proved difficult. So there's evidence of lawyers, for example, uh, turning up in US cities and they they don't know how to practice US law, right? It's a different legal system, common versus civil law. So their skills don't necessarily translate to these to these new circumstances. Um, we see, that said, with the congregation of, of, or the concentration, I should say, of French speakers in some of these cities, we see French language newspapers emerging. Uh, they're usually short-lived, maybe for a year or two in a place like Philadelphia or New York. Uh, but Sometimes they'd be printed in, in two columns, French on one side, English on the other, um, as a way to appeal to a French language audience as well as, as an Anglophone audience. Mureau de Saint-Marie opened a, a bookstore in Philadelphia to cater to both uh, French language readers, English language readers, and it was the site at which he wrote his three-volume history of, of Saint-Domingue and rubbed elbows with other men, educated men interested in, in such matters. And Moreau is quite a character. He leaves a diary of his time in the United States, which is in sometimes celebratory and other times denigrating of what he calls kind of the rude manners and bad food 
of the United States. But in, in one of them, like he credits himself with having introduced condoms to, to the United States, which sounds a bit specious, but uh, it sounds in keeping with uh, Mojo de Saint-Marie's overall appraisal of himself. It's, it's around 1805. Let's talk about the local lingu linguistic soundscape around various cities in the U.S., particularly South, South Louisiana, New Orleans. You said uh, linguistic collision. You talked about linguistic collision, which I think is, more, is a more accurate uh, term. Here's uh, what you wrote. The 18th century linguistic collision of African languages and French led to, develop, to the development of a new vernacular called, appropriately enough, Creole. Uh, tell us about that. Well, prior to the arrival of exiles from Saint-Domingue, it, it was unusual to hear French on the streets of many U.S. cities. But that's not to say that U.S. cities weren't linguistically diverse. There were obviously Europeans from various backgrounds. In the case like Philadelphia, you could hear a lot of German. And in some, in New York, uh, colonial area, you could still hear uh, Dutch. And, and actually one scholar has noted that um, uh, enslaved Black people in the Northeast in the colonial era some of them, they too knew, knew Dutch. And of course, uh, enslaved Africans brought with them uh, various languages from, from the West Coast of, of Africa. Um, and that linguistic diversity was part of these seaport cities. That said, the exiles bring more French, and I would argue they probably bring uh, Creole, right? Haitian Creole is the is as you as you point out, right? Is a, a collision between various African languages and French that led to this this new vernacular, this new language, which people of all races in Saint Domingue had some proficiency with, and so it's not unreasonable to think that via the exiles, whether white. Uh, people of African descent or enslaved people, they they would bring uh, oil to the United States too. Lady, uh, talk to us about physical appearance. Uh, so you said clothing w was was crucial in terms of how you know the Sandomengans were uh, you know to discern individual identities uh, and physical appearance. Uh, all features also played a role, of, you know, racially. Uh, in terms of, of, of to signal status, uh, racial classification, nationality, and, and gender, can you can you talk about that overall? The role of of a physical appearance uh, in terms of how the refugees interacted, the Sandomangan refugees interacted with with Americans when they got here. As residents in U.S. cities encountered white and black uh, styles in the in the streets they they took this as an opportunity to to appraise one another um, and one of the means by which they did this was by sizing up uh, their appearance in the 18th century uh, what somebody wore or how somebody looked was supposed to be an indication of their their inner selves, right? It gave you a sense of how their character and and how they how they were as as persons, um, whether they were virtuous or or full of vice. One one can imagine the the spectrum of, of possibilities. And in this case, it, it's really hard to get actually the question of how people looked in the past is really difficult to locate because when you think about it, we. We have portraits of elites mostly. Uh, we don't have we don't have photographs of everyday people or detailed descriptions often of of how everyday residents looked. <laughs> um, part of it is a lack of technology, and and others is another. It's a just 
a failure to maybe write and observe uh, along the kinds of categories which we might be most interested in. And so, but oddly, the way I came to start thinking about appearances was through advertisements for enslaved people who had run away. And what I noticed in the language of these advertisements in which an owner would would place an ad for a person who had absconded, they would include the person's name, but also often a detailed accounting of what that person was wearing. Um, and in the 1790s, you start to see the the category or sort of a, a description of individuals as French Negroes, um, and by that they mean. Uh, black people from from Saint Domingue. It became their kind of shorthand, and I was fascinated because in some of these advertisements, uh, be a case of a person being described as uh, he might look like an American enslaved person, but he's actually a French Negro. So it seemed that by by using those terms that. It was clear, or the author thought it would be clear to readers, what exactly that person might look like, which suggested to me that there were set ideas about the looks of these populations and and what it accounted to. And so I started looking at a lot of advertisements for enslaved uh, black Sandinians who had, had run away, looking for features in their clothing that might have set them apart from uh, American <coughs> uh, enslaved people. And some of the language around their appearance involved things like uh, person was dressed in the West Indian Creole manner. Uh, and while these distinguishing features are, are not hard and fast in terms of what determined a West Indian Creole manner, there are a couple of things that came to light. One seemed to be uh, ways that enslaved Black refugees wore um, handkerchiefs. Um, they were a noticeable accessory, not only for the for the patterns or the colors, but for the ways that they were worn, often wrapped around the head in a particular manner, especially among uh, black women, which was seen as being indicative of of Saint-Domingue. Another thing they noticed were uh, small hoop earrings. Uh, sometimes even the slang term for those earrings was Creole, uh, indicated again a, a provenance from, from the Caribbean. Um, <coughs> and these seem to be features that uh, made these individuals stand out on on the streets and help to identify them as being from from Saint-Domingue. So there was a I I I was intrigued by uh, we were talking about soundscape earlier that the refugees are are infusing uh, part of the the visual landscape or the visual peoplescape i guess of these cities and and the ways that they could stand out uh, and and how that informed the appraisals of Americans of San Dominguez and, and San Dominguez of Americans. Um, it must be said that the refugees had some pretty strong ideas about how they thought Americans looked to. Afudai! Mila, mila! Philanthropy used to be a word I thought was pretty straightforward until I read your book. You actually devoted a whole chapter titled The Dangers of Philanthropy. You wrote that in the 1790s, the United States had no local or national infrastructure to deal with destitute persons. Uh, give us a, a base first, a baseline understanding of what you know the the I guess the emergence of philanthropy in the U.S. 
in the 1790s uh, during the Haitian Revolution, and, and please be sure to touch on its uh, racialized component. It's a classic historian's move, I guess, to take a, a word that seems transparent, like philanthropy, and and turn it on its head a bit and, and contextualize and, as we like to say, problematize it. Um, but philanthropy is a term that's actually tied to the 18th century. It's tied up in enlightenment currents, uh, and it expresses the notion that that um, we typically think of the enlightenment maybe as tied with reason, right? But this aspect of of philanthropy highlights the importance of sympathy, of feeling, of a person's capacity to uh, to connect and 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 sympathize with uh, his fellow humans, right? Um, and this capacity for sympathy, it allowed men and importantly women to recognize when the rights and happiness of others were in jeopardy and it moves them to act. So it's it's about this aptitude to feel and a mandate to act upon it, to, to write a situation. And the United States embraces this notion of, of philanthropy. It sees itself as as Thomas Fame famously called in a sense, an asylum for mankind. And so it could be a place where people could enjoy rights. But even as I'm describing this, uh, one can begin to see in a place where slavery is prevalent, that philanthropy opens up uh, or reveals a, a paradox, a tension between enslavement <laughs> And claims to the 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 values held within uh, philanthropy, and we see how uh, the Haitian Revolution um, lays this tension bare, kind of opens up this paradox in in some interesting ways. Part of it is is structural in that in the United States, uh, just recently ratify the constitution right there while there was the ideal of being an asylum and an ideal of philanthropy there wasn't really bureaucratic structures in place to to deal with that there weren't national agencies for example that could be called on uh, to aid those in need in the face of a disaster or uh, some form of catastrophe um, and instead, you have localized movements. Uh, these cities, they're, they're pretty vibrant, calling on individuals to help uh, as a fire or uh, making pleas for people to make, give subscriptions to um, help indigent populations. But you, you see this burbling of benevolent societies, but there's nothing that sustains them beyond this local or and sometimes maybe state level. They're usually episodic rather than continual. And then when you get an influx of populations like the refugees, especially in 1793, when they show up in, in thousands in certain cities, it's a real struggle to deal with this. And the federal government isn't too sure what to do because it's not clearly articulated in the constitution uh, what the powers of the nation might be uh, in in these kinds of circumstances. So one thing that one aspect that becomes very clear and that the white refugees help to deploy is a kind of critique of a certain kind of philanthropy, a philanthropy that's tied to abolition. In that one of the arguments white refugees make for the, the rebellion in Saint-Domingue is that abolition societies, uh, to a certain degree in the United States, but more, uh, more firmly the Amis des Noirs in France and uh, Wilberforce's uh, society of abolition in uh, the UK, they are lobbying and spreading 
uh, what the white refugees see as a dangerous ideal of philanthropy, a, a leveling philanthropy, which includes enslaved people. And by unleashing this language of philanthropy and its emphasis on humanity and the equality of humans, they argue that this, this incited enslaved people to act. And that they are in some ways the victims of this, what they call misguided philanthropy, right? Because they are racist and believe that Black people should not be included under this philanthropic umbrella. And in the United States, you are beginning to have abolition societies in, in individual states like Pennsylvania and Massachusetts that are pra- practicing gradual manumission, slowly uh, freeing enslaved people based on uh, date of birth and uh, a certain amount of servitude. And once they finish that term, then they can be free. And this is a cause for concern. It is one way through which white exiles leverage sympathy from white Americans and, and get donations to, to sustain them in the United States. Um, and and to a certain degree, uh, certain moments they take that money back uh, on domain to try to fight against uh, black rebels. But it it introduces this seed of doubt into philanthropy because in the United States, in the U.S. Republic, it shows how it how it how slavery then is in stark contrast to this ideal that is supposed to be so central to the United States.